A lot of us do have this fear of flying, right? Because we don't understand the physics and the dynamics going on. Um, you know, I've always been told, you know, that the plane wants to stay in the air because of physics, right? It, but I know for a fact that there are a ton of people who simply don't trust what they can't see. And so what I want to talk about this morning is a doctrine in the Church of the Nazarene. It's not just a Nazarene doctrine. It's a doctrine that has been, it's a biblical doctrine. It's been around for about 2,000 years. Um, we've ignored it sometimes, and, and at other times we brought it rightfully to the front. Um, it's this idea of being entirely sanctified, Right? That somehow God is offering this opportunity to cleanse us from something entirely. And in our minds, we think, well, sin. He's going to cleanse us entirely from sin. I'm going to become perfect. And we're like, <gasps> and it, it like freaks us out. It's like, oh, no, I, ca I can't see how that could possibly be. I know my life is going to fall right out of the sky and crash in as if I even dare touch this thing called entire sanctification. All right, we've just got this crazy fear of such a basic, beautiful, amazing gift of grace from God that we've built all this stuff around and robbed this incredible idea, biblical idea of its power. So we're going to give it its power back this morning. Uh, week four of our series. And what we're doing with this whole series, um, we are looking at... Several questions. What if? What if? Kind of dream questions. Um, the first question we looked at in week one is, what if God does want us happy? A lot of us really didn't buy that idea very easily. It went against our grain. Somehow in the holiness movement, we have become known as the people who aren't allowed to have fun. We're the frowners. We're, the, we're not cheerful, right? The holiness people are, ugh, but what if God does want us happy, right? What if happiness and joy and gladness and rejoicing and blessedness, which means really more than happy, what if that all that joy of the Lord was a gift of God, right, that drew us to himself? It, drew, it made us want to obey him, right, because we love him so much. And, and just that joy of pleasing our heavenly father, right? And, and, and what if that joy also drives us to love one another, Right? There's nothing more special to, to, to love somebody significantly and sacrificially and to see the look on their face and, and how their life changes. It's like your, your whole, your head goes whoop, right? It, it just, it's, it's an amazing feeling that you can affect another life that positively. What if God does want us happy? Again, nothing wrong with wanting happiness. I think we've arrived at that point. It's just a matter of not exalting happiness over God. Right? Because if that happens, we no longer serve him, but he serves us. Right? He becomes our tool or our master. So when we grasp for happiness without God's holiness or, or apart from God's desire to make us holy first, happiness goes south. Happiness is doomed. Right? Without holiness, happiness tends to be self-centered, short-term, prone to hurting himself and others, and simply doomed to failure. God, it would be easy for him to make us happy. We looked at this idea, but to make us holy requires a little bit more effort, a little bit more time, and sometimes it causes pain in our lives. But we can never get to that point where we believe that that's the way it's supposed to be, like that's the goal, right, to be, hmm? No, it's to be filled with the joy of the Lord, but holiness is sometimes that place that we have to go through to, to really value and appreciate happiness and not to treat it lightly, 
And then two weeks ago, two weeks ago, what if, what if God has given us more than enough? More than enough of what matters. <laughs> That's crucial. More than enough of what matters to accomplish our task. Because the key is what we're receiving is, is, is from Christ, right? Again, it's not from Trump. It's not from everywhere else. It, it's, from, it's, from, it's from God. It's from his heavenly account, right? So um, this, 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 this thing that Paul says that, that you know, he, he, it gave him joy. And since it gave him joy, he's absolutely certain that it will give you joy. And, and so he says, hey, you know, lean into this, lean into this big time um, what Christ is doing in and through you is, is above all else that this earth has to offer, right? That, that's that's the, the gold standard, right, to be Christ-like. And here's the great part, that what Jesus supplies us um, can't be taken away by thieves. It won't rust. It won't get destroyed, right? When we're generous, which is kingdom currency, because Jesus isn't against amassing treasure. He's just against us massing it in the wrong place, Right? He's saying, hey, amass your treasures in my kingdom. And in a word, that's generosity, simply generosity. He's generous, so we have that desire to be generous too. Again, we don't desire it because we're going to get anything in return, right? We desire it because we want to be able to experience the riches of knowing him and being in his presence. Paul was absolutely convinced that God's tried and true method of supplying his people is always through Jesus always produces the best results. And then last week, what if God told us how to share Jesus? What if Jesus told us how to share Jesus? What if Jesus was more specific and detailed than he was about anything else, right? Because, again, he was a little cryptic about a few things, right? What if, what if, what if he turns out that he is the best evangelist that ever lived? And not only did he display it, not only did he model it, but he, he told his disciples how to do it, and he tells us how to do it. How do you share him, right? And we find out in Luke chapters 8, 9, and 10 that that's actually what appears to be Jesus' evangelism 101 course. So if you're sitting at home and you're thinking, how do I reach my neighbor? Sit down with Luke 8, 9, and 10. Just live there for a little while. And there's just so many pearls of wisdom, just gems, right? How do you talk to somebody who might not want to hear what you have to say? Um, just some incredible, incredible stuff in there. Evangelism Jesus style. With the Holy Spirit's guidance and with Jesus' instruction on finding that person of peace, we need to look for people who God has already been preparing in advance, right? They're, they're waiting for us to act and to show and to tell them about the kingdom because there's always a harvest. It might not be everywhere, but there is always a harvest. So today's question builds on the affirmative responses to these first three questions. It's kind of a mathematical, like if, if A is true and B is true, is C and true, then D is true. So if, if it's true, if it's true that persons of peace, like in Luke, are currently being prepared by our Heavenly Father to receive the good news and are simply waiting for somebody to act the kingdom out in front of them, to show the kingdom and to tell them about the kingdom. If that's true, and if it's also true that it would complete our joy and make us ridiculously happy to be ridiculously generous as we act and show and tell about the kingdom, and if there's more than enough in God's economy, according to God's accounting, there's more than enough to go around, more than enough to bless everybody. 
as we act and show and tell the kingdom. If these three statements are true, what if, this morning our question, what if we gave ourselves entirely? What if we gave ourselves entirely? I know when I accepted Christ, I gave him my junk. <laughs> I didn't give him everything. That took a while. Right? I, just, I just like, Lord, get, get this junk out of my life, right? It's dragging me down. But I did. I reached a stage in my life, and a lot of you have too, and a lot of you have looked at us who have and wondered what's going on there. Today, I want to explain what's going on there because I have given myself entirely, and it's an amazing feeling. And I know a lot of people in this church have given themselves entirely to Christ, and what I want to do this morning is I want to explain to the rest of us what happens what would happen? How would God respond if we said, God, I'm going to give you everything, right? I've given you a few stuff right now here and there and everything, but I, I, you know what? I'm tired of playing games. I'm, I, I, I'm really going to lean into your promise, right? I, I, I want it all. I want, I want it all, right? Everything that you have for me, I want. I, I, I'm tired of getting piecemeal, right? What would it look like? How would God respond to this kind of an offering, that generous Here's what the exchange looks like, just to be clear on what we're talking about. This is what Jesus promises in Scripture. If we give up earth for heaven now, then God will give us heaven on earth now. Not when we die. Not when we die. It's like this idea of now but not yet, right? We, we, we get a glimpse, we get a, we get a taste but the full, the full banquet's going to have to wait just a little bit. Like, we can wait, we can wait on this gift. We, we can actually wait till we die to receive this gift. That, that's allowable. But it'd be like subsisting on rice and beans when, when, when Christ is literally offering us a full banquet that's been prepared in advance. He's saying, here's a banquet. Or you can struggle for the rest of your existence and enjoy the banquet after you die. I'm telling you, I want you to enjoy it now. Because I want people to look at you and go, wow, he is enjoying life. Why is he enjoying life so much? That's why I want you to enjoy that banquet now. Don't, don't live on rice and beans right now. Right? He, he, he has so much more, so much more for us. See, part of our predicament is that we've been led to believe that this simply isn't possible until we die and see Jesus. Right? He can't show us or give us any kind of heaven because we are so depraved, we are such messes, we are so unworthy of anything from heaven that he holds it all back until we get there. Like, we've been sold this lie because that's a lie. Right? Isaiah told us a little bit earlier, right? God's plan was, would be to bring heaven to earth, right? To, 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 from ashes to, to glory, to beauty. Uh, that, that, that's his goal. It's not to leave us struggling. That was never the goal. And yet some of us still live in that struggle because we don't realize that he has something more for us. He wants something more for us. In fact, this amazing gift of amazing grace that God provides is actually unveiled very early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has taken a trip to his hometown. He's been tempted by the devil. He's going back to his hometown. He's not going to be well received there. But he makes a startling statement. And, and, and even to this day, we look at this statement and we struggle with it. We're, we're like, that, that can't be. Right? There, there's there's got to be a Greek better understanding of this passage, right? There, but... I'm telling you, it, it's very straightforward. Listen to this. This is in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 16. 
Again, Jesus has gone to his hometown of Nazareth. He's gone in. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Again, here he's quoting from Isaiah that Charlie read earlier. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's verse 18 and 19. I didn't add that last 19 number there. And then in verse 20, it says this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What Isaiah said four, five, six hundred years ago is happening today in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Essentially, Jesus is telling them, look, you, you currently have salvation, literally. You have it by way of the law of Moses, and if you can't do the law of Moses, which most of you can't, well, we got the sacrificial system. God, God's got you, right? He's giving you a way to be righteous. But Jesus is saying, look, look, people, man, my father wants more than that right? He wants you to get victory. He doesn't want you to live in the guilt of sins committed. He wants you to have victory over sins. He wants you to actually not have to sin. Now, we're not going to be in the, out of the presence of sin, but I believe with all my heart, he says, by the power of his spirit, he will give us the ability, the power to resist sin. In this lifetime, I know it sounds crazy, but that's what Jesus was saying. I have come to release the prisoners and give sight to the blind. That's what he's talking about. This heaven, this is this amazing gift, goes by a lot of different names, right? We in the church of Nazarene, we call it entire sanctification, being entirely purified. We're going to get to that. What does that really mean? Uh, Christian perfection, perfect love, heart purity, the fullness of the blessing. That was a phrase that I grew up with um, in southern Indiana in a Nazarene church, the fullness of the blessing, Christian holiness, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All these different terms, we find them, parts of them, different collections of them throughout Scripture, throughout our early church fathers, the writings of our church fathers. Um, but they all have such heavy uh, cultural connotations and, and un, unnecessary nuances that get attached to them. You know, all these words like entire and perfect, and, and people look at those words and we think, they think about us, they're nuts, right? Because that's impossible. You can't be perfect. I mean, who do they think they are, right? So, so everyone gets kind of confused with these terms. And so we're, we're going to kind of clean up a little bit of all that mess. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to use a guy named Zeno. He, he created these mathematical paradoxes, right? There were paradoxes that, that, are, that, that in, in life, these situations appear impossible or, or self-contradictory, right? These situations shouldn't happen, but they do. You know, he, that, he was good at doing that. He lived about 250 years before Christ, Zeno. One of his most famous paradoxes could be stated, and this isn't the way he stated it, but the way we're going to state it, we're going to use a turtle and the pulpit. We could state Zeno's paradox like this. What if a turtle sitting in the back of the sanctuary were asked to preach? Now, here's the turtle's mathematical dilemma. He would start in the back there where, where Dan and his wife are standing there, and he would make it halfway. And at that point, he's halfway here, and at that point, he now has 
the second half to go. Now, he can continue and reach that halfway point, and at that point, he's still got what? Half the distance to go. And once he covered that half the distance, he would have what? Half the distance to go. Now, that goes on indefinitely because there's always another fraction that you can split. And so the poor turtle gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, but theoretically, he can never really get to the pulpit. Now, we understand that this is, it's a foolish argument, right? The, assuming that we're going to let a turtle preach. He, he does eventually make it to the pulpit, right? But really, it's, 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 in some ways, our life is a lot like poor Mr. Turtle, you know, trapped in Zeno's mathematical paradox. Um, we never quite reach the pulpit, right? Here's how Paul describes life as Zeno's paradox, he says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. So we know we're destined for something greater than this, right? It, it's there. It, nobody told us. We just, we just intuit, right? We know that the day will come when the image of God will be completely restored in us. But that day probably isn't today, and it more than likely isn't tomorrow either. We know that we're getting closer and closer to the day when we are made fully perfect, released from our human imperfections and remade um, in the image of God. But we also know that in this lifetime, we won't reach that stage until death. We, we know this. We get, like the turtle, we get infinitely close. But glorification won't happen until we die. And this is crucial to understand because a lot of people confuse the idea of the doctrine of entire sanctification which, with what's really called final sanctification. Entire sanctification and final sanctification, which is really glorification. Entire sanctification is not the final goal. It's a part of the process by which we reach the real goal of final sanctification or what we call glorification. See, many people here, the Nazarenes, that we believe in entire sanctification, and because they're confused, that with glorification, right, they believe that we believe that we can become perfect in this lifetime. And then they hear us quoting like Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, and they think those holy rollers have rolled right off the deep end, right? This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. It says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And they think, those crazy people, <laughs> they're, just, oh my goodness. But here, here's the context. The context, all Matthew is saying is that God is perfect in love. Now, God is also perfect in behavior, but that's not what is expected of us. Matthew is saying is that we can also be perfect in love, right? Again, we certainly don't mean, nor does Matthew, that being entirely sanctified is behaviorally speaking perfection, that won't happen until we've been removed from the presence of sin, and that's glorification. But they are being perfected, and their hearts are being made pure, and they are being freed from original sin. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment. Original sin and personal sin. Original sin is, is really not sin. It's a propensity to sin. We're all born with it, Right? It's that, that, that desire to please ourselves. You, you see that in, in all humanity. It's, it's you know, it, it first rare, I, I hate this phrase, rears its ugly head as a two-year-old, the terrible twos, right? Me, 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 mine, 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 mine. Every, everything is like you've never seen more selfish people in your life than a two-year-old. Um, but that, that's not what was going on here. Original sin is just that, that, that 
desire to please self. Now, personal sin is when you actually go and do something disobedient, right? You violate a known, the known will of God. Now, we in the Christian world, we've decided pretty much that until you reach teenage years, you're really not held accountable for personal sin, original sin. Um, again, original sin is just simply that propensity to please self. It's not actually the sin, but it's the birthplace of sin, of personal sin. And what we're saying is an entire sanctification, this is amazing, but God does wash away that original sin, that desire to please ourselves. And all that changes in our hearts is now we desire to actually please God, right? We, we, all, we always desired it, but we couldn't achieve it, right? Because we wanted to please ourselves. Like we love Jesus, but we love the world just a little bit more, right? And we get to that point in our lives, we're like, you know what? The world is turning out to be not so much and everything that I've given to Jesus turned out to be gold. I'm giving it all up. I'm going to give myself entirely. And God responds with an amazing gift. And at that moment, he entirely sanctifies us. He removes that original, that propensity for sin, not personal sin, right? The person experiencing entire sanctification can still sin. We're going to get to that. Let me, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead of myself. Uh, entire sanctification isn't so much a state that we attain, but a process in which we participate. Entire sanctification is about more about Mr. Turtle being invited to preach, responding to that invitation, and making his way toward the pulpit than it is about him actually making it to the pulpit. Even if Mr. Turtle never makes it to the pulpit in this lifetime, we see him responding to the invitation and moving in that direction. If we believe that entire sanctification involves God removing the presence of sin, and this is an idea that has been floating around and it scares people to death. That's why people don't fly in airplanes. We're like, that's impossible. Well, they're right. In this lifetime, you cannot be removed from the presence of sin. Impossible. If you believe that entire sanctification involves God removing the presence of sin from your life, you're confusing glorification with sanctification. Glorification, you will be removed from the presence of sin because you're going to be in the presence of God. But until that time, he's going to be busy sanctifying you, completely washing you of all the filth that's been collecting. And this is important to understand, otherwise we have folks running around lying like, oh, I've experienced entire sanctification, therefore I've, I've experienced perfection, and, but I can't tell you that I'm not perfect and I did stumble yesterday, so I'm going to lie to you or I'm going to feel horribly guilty that I did sin and I wasn't supposed to sin, but that's not what entire sanctification ever meant in the first place. It simply meant being entirely, offering your entirety to God and then him washing away original sin, that desire to please self. He actually makes it possible for us to love him. What we always wanted in the first place but weren't able to do, he makes possible. But personal sin is still there. People are on their way to being perfected. They aren't being made perfect with entire sanctification. That's final sanctification or glorification. Now, this is where Paul lands. This is kind of where he explains in chapter 8. You know, a minute ago, he's in, in chapter 7, and he's just like, ah, 
not. But in chapter 8, he's figured it out. Listen to this. This is, uh, excuse me, this is him speaking in his letter to the Philippians. We're going to get to chapter 8 in Romans in just a moment. But this is what he says in his letter to, the, uh, the, to Philippi um, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. It says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained all this, obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, according to Paul, the goal seems to be tied up with becoming Christ-like and attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You're following me here. He speaks about pressing on toward the goal, even though we recognize that the goal of resurrection to the dead it can't be recognized in this lifetime because we're not dead yet. But like the turtle, it's important to continue moving toward glorification, continue moving toward that perfection, continue to allow God to perfect us. Again, like the turtle, we want to continue moving toward glorification, even if we never receive that in this lifetime. All right, so now we know what entire sanctification is not. What is entire sanctification? Let's like give it a label. Let's give it a definition right here is as best as I could do. Entire sanctification is the continual filling of the Holy Spirit, and we believe that that is certainly attainable in this lifetime. Not the continual perfection of the believer, but the continual filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Huge difference there. Now, here's the thing about being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. This is shocking to some people, but it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Um, it's not an automatic thing, right? Even at salvation, it wasn't an automatic thing. You knocked, right? God, in his preventing grace, drew you to himself. You weren't totally deprived. You, you had a spark of the divine in you. You were able to respond, and you did, you responded, you knocked, and, and the triune God invited you into their life, right? They, they took their life and they entered your life. They, they combined their life with your life, but you requested it. They didn't impose it. In, in what's called a crisis moment, you said, I, I'm making a mess, Jesus. I, I need to trust you from here on out. So a, lot, a lot of people don't realize, don't remember that moment. I know my wife was told that if you don't remember the moment that you were saved, then you're not saved. I'm not sure about that. Talking with one of the professors at, at, at NU, and he says, you know what? I don't remember that day. I, I just... From my earliest memory, I trusted Jesus. Now, my guess is in the memory of that, that child who's now a professor, there were a lot of discussions. Lord, I, I love you. I trust you in Sunday school with mom and dad. There were a lot of verbal exchanges, right? But even in the salvation, again, there's that request, a crisis moment, and then God begins to do his amazing work. But even upon salvation, again, the Bible teaches that we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but again, that's not even, even that isn't automatic, right? You knocked. And to be filled with daily, to be filled daily with the Holy Spirit, it's kind of much the same process, right? It's both an ongoing request, 
Now, hear that very carefully. Entire sanctification, being entirely filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and having that propensity to please ourselves completely, entirely washed away, but not the ability to sin. We still have that ability. It's just the propensity gets washed away entirely. That original sin, gone. Again, it's both an ongoing request and on God's part, a continual blessing in loving and holy response to that ongoing request to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Salvation and sanctification experiences are both instantaneous and process-related. For example, let me just talk about salvation for just a moment. A lot of you guys remember in school, you had a plastic cup and you put a wet paper towel in there and you put a bean seed, more than likely, right, between the... The, the plastic and the paper towel. And, and for a week or two, you watched that thing and, and you thought, ah, I killed it. <laughs> There's nothing happening with that seed. It's, yeah, you know, don't have a green thumb. And then one day you walked out there and the thing had sprung like a little tiny root had popped up. That's a great picture of salvation. Like God has been working. People were praying in your life. People were pouring into you. They were giving you nutrients. They were giving you, they were giving you everything that you needed. And then finally, throughout this long process, finally you looked around one day and you said, you know what, they're right. I need to trust God. Bam. So it was crisis moment, but it was also process-related. And the same thing could be said about sanctification, Sanctification, if we took that seed out of that little plastic cup and we stuck it in the ground, and I promise you, I've, I've been through this many times. For the next several weeks, I sit there and think, oh, I killed it. <laughs> there ain't nothing happening. There's nothing that's going to be popping out of the ground there. And I, I don't know what I did wrong, um, but that sucker's dead. <clears throat> and then one day you walk out there and, and something, right? It, it bloomed. It, it broke the surface. That's what's going on with entire sanctification, right? You, you received Christ, and, and you're like you gave him all your junk, right? And then at a certain point, you're like, I need more. I need more. New, I need more of what this world has to offer. And we seek it, and God gives it to us. Again, we wouldn't see anything growing on, going on inside that dirt, but we know things were going on. And in that second crisis moment in the life of the seed, that's when he breaks the surface. It was a crisis moment. In the life of a believer, we might call that moment the beginning of entire sanctification. Listen to me closely. When that plant bursts through the soil, it's been, it's been gathering nutrients and people and praying and, and, and growing in grace and, and receiving the word of God and listening to the teachings and putting them into action as best they can. And then another crisis moment occurs. Again, we say the beginning of entire sanctification because if this person does not continue to grow in grace, the plant will wither and die. You can put it in the ground and you can stop watering it, stop giving it nutrients, it will die. It, it will die. Instead, we expect the plant to continue to grow because sanctification is not only a moment decision, but it's also a process, right? Again, we don't notice the growth. We could sit and we watch that plant for hours and see nothing. But things are going on. Things are growing on. The growth may not be perceptible, but it doesn't mean that things aren't growing. 
Being entirely sanctified is not a one-and-done deal, and that is the way it has been presented for so long. Like, you get it, and you arrive there, and that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what our fathers, our Nazarene founding fathers talked about at all. Again, for this reason, when we are asked to share our testimony, we should probably talk about the idea that God began his work of entire sanctification. He began his work of cleansing me from all that yuckiness, right? And until I'm glorified, until I die and I'm in his presence and out of the presence of sin, he will continue to keep that garbage out of my life. He hasn't finished the work of entire sanctification, and he won't until final sanctification. But like the turtle, we've got to continue to move toward the goal. Even though the progress might be imperceptible at times, it doesn't mean that we're not moving in the right direction. So let's get very, very specific here. Here's how the 10th article of faith puts it. This is our, what we believe about entire sanctification. Just a little clarification here. We believe that entire sanctification is that act of God. So right there, right at the beginning, it's an act of God. It's not on you. Right? We've got this idea that somehow I have to be entirely sanctified, but really all you got to do is give yourself entirely to him, and he, it, it's all on him, entirely removes that act. And subsequent to regeneration, you're saved first, you grow in grace, and then you finally realize, you know, I gave him my junk at salvation, but now I want to give him everything. Right? I've been holding back. And I have a feeling that because I've been holding back, he's had to hold back. Not like he's like, you know, like that. It's just, but he can't work with what I haven't given him. Does that make sense? Until I give him everything, he can't do everything for me that he wants to do. That is the experience of being entirely sanctified. It's been said that you're saved from the penalty of sin at salvation or justification. And again, justification is a legal term. You've been declared innocent. In a flash, you've been changed. But you still have a history. You still have a whole lifetime of patterns and behaviors and things that God's Spirit is now going to begin to sanctify. He's now going to begin to make all that crazy junk in your life holy set apart, different than what it was used for in the past. It's going to be used for his glory now. Things are going to begin to change. So we, we, we're saved from the penalty of sin at justification, and we're saved from the power of sin at, sancti- at, at, excuse me, at, at justification. We're saved from the power of sin at sanctification, and then we're not saved from the presence of sin until glorification. But in the life of the believer, in that process of being entirely sanctified, sin no longer has a hold on the sanctified believer because they have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and set apart for God's purposes. They have been set free from the law. Here's how Paul says it. This is in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, right? Freedom from the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You have been set free. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us 
who do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on what the flesh desires. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. And again, Paul's drawing a distinction. There's one, one life that might, be, that might be experiencing salvation, but they're certainly not experiencing life the way they were meant and called and equipped and, and <laughs> resourced to, to, to have. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Here's the kicker line right there. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Without the indwelling spirit of God, you cannot commune. It just doesn't work. You're you're selfish. That original sin owns you. You are a slave to it. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, listen closely, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives you life now. That's what Paul's talking about here. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you now, they're not talking about death, they're not talking about glorification, they're talking about right now. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because his Spirit who lives in you. Living according to the Spirit could be termed growth in grace, right? Continual filling of the Spirit. So we see that entire sanctification is both that moment of cleansing, that decision that we make, and that continual filling of God's Spirit. It's not just a moment, but it's also a process. It's really, it's really both. And again, if we can't explain to people out there or even to ourselves what entire sanctification means, then our tradition, our Wesleyan holiness tradition, I mean, we already see it. People are looking for a foundation, something firm. And without the Holy Spirit, without being filled with the Holy Spirit in our lives daily, it's like we're standing on sand. And because of this situation, unless people fully understand what it means to be filled, continually filled with God's Spirit, they move to two separate extremes, trying to find solid ground. They move toward fundamentalism and, and here's the way it is and I don't have to think anymore and God's got it all figured out and I just, just got to make it to death and that's when I'll get everything, right? We, we, we want to move toward that, what appears to be firm ground, but it's not. Or we move toward this charismatic Pentecostalism and we got to have this experience and, and that's somehow real. And Jesus is saying, look, I... I I want to fill you with my spirit every day. It doesn't have to be all that. You don't have to, have to be all this. But you can live free without fear. And without that original sin, that, that, that desire to be selfish. And, I, and, and here's the kicker. Here's the crazy thing. In our church, we have this whole big, long discussion about entire sanctification. Is it, is it gradual or is it, is it a moment? Here, here's my, the best of my understanding. 
It, it is, in fact, both. It, it, but I get the impression, like a lot of our salvation experiences, we don't remember the moment we made that decision. But my guess is those of you who are experiencing entire sanctification, you are experiencing the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. You might not recognize it because it didn't have the right words attached to it. Like, you know, remember when you were little, you, you, you somehow thought that you had to be at an altar to accept Christ, and you find out later you could accept him in your car, right, cruising on a Friday night. I mean, God's everywhere, right? And somehow we get this idea that, that entire sanctification has to be done with the right words in the right situation and the right emotion and all. And, 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 and Jesus is saying, no, stop it, stop it, stop. I, I just want to fill you with my presence. Don't, don't make it about a whole bunch of magic words or a formula or anything like that. Don't, don't, don't do that. I want to entirely sanctify you. That's all I want to do. I want to make you entirely pure, but you've got to want it. You've got to ask me to start that work in your life. And again, I know a lot of people, and I know they are experiencing entire sanctification in their lives right now, but they can't remember, like, the magic formula. But I have a distinct impression that they've had an ongoing conversation with God that says something like this, I'm giving you all today. Again, I'm going to give you it all They didn't know the words entire sanctification, but they were being entirely sanctified. You were being entirely sanctified. Every morning when you get up in bed and you say, Father, fill me with your presence. Fill me with your presence. There's a lot of things that I could want to do today, but I want to do your will. I I do. I want to do your will. Help me. And he does. Like, he does. That's what he's been wanting all along. He's been waiting for you, right? Again, you gave him your junk, but now you're giving him everything. And now what he's going to do, he's going to give you his everything. What if we gave ourselves entirely? God responds, I will give you myself entirely. <laughs> Praise God. This is, this is crazy. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. August 23rd, 2020, the beginning of my entire sanctification. The beginning of my entire sanctification. You gave your junk and God justified you. But you're at that point in your life where you're like, you know what, I, I, I need to, I need, I, I keep desiring these other things, right? Jesus, I, I love you, but I love these other things just a little bit more. I love you, but I love these a little bit more. And I don't want to because they keep bringing me down. I, I really do want to love you. So, Father, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Take away that desire to please me and replace it with a pure heart Not a perfected heart, Lord, but a perfect heart that just desperately wants to love you. And he does. And he does. Again, no magic words, no magic formula. Just recognize that you can experience being filled entirely the utmost of his glorious Riches in heaven can be yours. Very short story here. A father. Because this is the, the choice that Jesus is offering us. He's got a little girl, and early in her life, he gave her some fake pearls. This little girl loved her fake pearls more than anything else. The father came into her bedroom one night, as he did every night, and to pray with her. And he says something strange one night. He says, I'm, if you give me those pearls, I've got something else for you. The little girl's kind of beginning to freak out. Says, well, you, you can have my horse. You can have horsey. 
but, but not my pearls. Father said, no, not a problem, not a problem. I love you. Good night, sweet dreams, sweetheart. Next morning, next night, same thing, same reaction. Oh, you can have my Barbie doll. You can have Ken. I don't even like him anyway. Right? And this, this dialogue goes on for a little while, and then finally one night, the father offers just one more time because he, he's going to do it every night. He's going to do it every night. He's going to offer her something else in, in replacement of these fake pearls. And finally, with tears in her eyes, she says, I trust you, Dad. I'll give you my fake pearls. Well, I don't know what you got. I, you know I love those pearls. But I know you got something better for me, so I, he pulls out of his pocket a string of real pearls. That's what Jesus is offering us this morning. Right? We've got fake pearls. We, we have salvation and we call it life, but it's a so-called life. It's not life. And he wants to give us real life. He wants to give us real pearls. But we have to ask, and we have to ask daily, if not moment by moment. So I want to offer you this experience this morning Many of you have been saved. You've given God your junk, but you never gave him everything. Bow your heads right now. Father, I've given you junk. I, I, I gave you that when, when I asked you to save me, and you did, and I love that, but I've been struggling now. This isn't the joy that, that you promised me in your word, and I feel like I'm doing something not complete. I'm not, going, I'm not following through here, Father, and I'm going to follow through now. I want you to, to take it all, right? I'm going to offer you myself entirely, and your word says that you will give yourself entirely to me. So, Father, we just thank you for that. Every person who prayed a prayer, Father, fill me entirely today. I want to be filled entirely. That will be today, August 23rd, your crisis moment where you decided, I am tired of half-mealing this, half-weighing this. I, I want to go all the way. Today is that day, and then tomorrow is going to be that day again. And then the 25th and then the 26th and the 27th, Father, that anybody experience, experiencing your glory right now, that they would understand that you got to invite them back in. You got to invite, we got to invite you back in tomorrow too. And, and if you are experiencing entire sanctification right now, I just I want to encourage you continue to lean into being entirely cleansed. Keep leaning. You're you're going to get so close, and you might get frustrated. You're going to get so close. You're going to, but He's got you. He's got you, and you will be glorified. Thank you, Father, for this incredible gift that you are bestowing on people all over Richland right now. You want to fill them entirely because they're tired of playing games. They're tired of struggle. And they want to be entirely devoted to you. And Father, you promise when we give ourselves entirely to you, you give yourself entirely to us. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray. Amen.